0: You are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. Live from one of the 32 best soccer-playing nations in the world, it's the 252. Sports Talk Radio is done by academics. I'm Chris Garrett. And I'm Sam Mulberry. And those crickets you hear chirping are the absence of Chris Moore, our political science friend who actually is in Chicago, Illinois right now, or he's probably leaving Chicago. He's been hosting uh, Bethel's Model United Nations team at their big Thanksgiving tournament. Sort of a World Cup of in its own, right? It sort of is, yeah. I, I have no idea what the results are. They were playing the role of Pakistan this year, so we'll see. They did better than the actual Pakistan, which is not in the World Cup this year. And as you might have guessed, our topic for today and for the next couple of weeks is the FIFA Men's World Cup. What's sometimes called the biggest sporting event in the world, although I think the Olympics might beg to differ with that.
1: I gotta say, this feel it this feels both bigger and like more of a sporting event in some ways.
0: Yeah I mean I think partly because it actually goes for so long and it, I mean this one's actually really late in the year because of its location but this is going to go until I mean, basically the rest of our semester here at Bethel University. We should explain who we are in case you're new to this. Uh, Sam Chris and I, the other Chris are professors in the History, Philosophy and Political Science Department at Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota and for a while now we've been doing a podcast about sports. Uh So originally, this was to actually help us think through, Chris and I, a class we teach called the History and Politics of Sports, which I taught this past spring. It's on hiatus for this year, and then it'll come back in spring of 24 with Chris and I co-teaching it. Again, and so when we're not actually teaching the course, this is a more intermittent kind of podcast on Channel 3900. Sam, do you remember the last time we did one of these?
1: I think it was the Tokyo Olympics, right? Yeah, it was
0: kind of our wrap-up of those Olympics. I think maybe like October of 21? That sounds right, yeah. Uh, I think we actually talked to uh, Matt Moberg, a Bethel alum, who's chaplain for the Minnesota Timberwolves. We got a little pro basketball in. Yep. So it's been a while. But we thought it was time to bring back the 252 for a three-week mini-series all about the FIFA Men's World Cup, which this year is being held in the Persian Gulf state of uh, Qatar or Qatar. I don't know which one I'm going to go with on that. It's it's transliteration from the Arabic anyway, so we'll not do well. But um, we thought this would be a good time to do this, both because it is um, a, a major sporting event. Um, there, there's been an estimate that something like 5 billion humans will watch uh, games in the World Cup this year. Um,
1: where, where does that compare to? anything else that's why
0: I should have looked up the Olympics I mean and I, I don't think that's actually like five billion discrete users right 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 but I mean it's by far the biggest I mean viewing audience for a sporting mean, do, do, do you have a sense
1: do you have a sense of like like what a Super Bowl is um I mean it's nowhere
0: near that a quarter billion yeah, maybe I, yeah. Thought I saw like a 200 millions kind of range, yeah yeah or, I mean so I'm not sure that even the World Cup final will get that kind of number maybe I I but it's certainly an event of global significance but Also, an event that often, and especially this year, has maybe larger significance, not just socially or culturally, but politically. And so, um, I mean, one of the themes of the course, right, is how can sports help us to see history and politics? And so, I guess our theme for this three-week miniseries is how can this year's World Cup help us to see questions related to international relations, comparative politics, global history, so over the next uh, couple of weeks, we'll be talking about everything from, for example, religion and politics, and especially the religion of Islam, it plays a really important role this year, um, to uh, maybe some of the questions that we'll get into when Chris comes back around human rights and international relations, maybe questions about like, uh, post-colonization, global north versus global south, Today, all we're going to try to do is sort of set up some of that. Why is this a controversial World Cup, and what are some of the specific issues we want to come back to?
1: Um, as as we're getting kicked off here, though, uh, I, can you just tell the listeners sort of where you're at as a soccer fan? Because because like we can do this as academics, yep. but like I also hope there's moments where it's also because we also talk about like the. The sort of pure joy of watching Good sports, year. and the you know, we were just discussing before this the the result of uh, of the um, even the Argentina um, Saudi Arabia game yeah even
0: this morning we had the equivalent basically of a number sixteen seed knocking off number one in the in March Madness the Saudi Arabia which is I think maybe like the fifty second ranked team in the world one of the lowest in this tournament beat Argentina which as we'll see in a second is one of the favorites uh, this year two to one in their first group uh, group round. Match. So it's, I i am coming to this at the peak of my soccer fandom. I'll put it that way. Like four in years. In your ago. lifetime, would you say? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, I mean, there was a period in the 90s, kind of up through 2002, where I was a pretty big, like, U.S. men's national team fan. And then after that, more of a U.S. women's national team right. fan. But
1: it was a lot harder in the 90s to be um, in America and yep. be a global soccer fan. Absolutely. Yeah. But
0: what's interesting is that, I think, Sam, we're actually kind of opposite trajectories here. Like, covid actually made me a soccer fan in 2018 i was in connecticut doing archival research for my last book i barely paid any attention to what was happening in russia but then covid um my son and i started watching a lot of european soccer because it came back faster than american pro sports and we kind of got hooked especially in the premier league which is pretty much the world's leading league where a lot of these players in the world cup play uh, professionally and so both of us i think have been really counting down the days to this got super excited and so I basically foisted this on everyone else in our department that we should pay attention to the World Cup, including yeah. doing a two-five-two run.
1: I will say, for me, COVID made me realize I could live without sports. Mm-hmm. Like the, it was the first year in, uh, in twenty years. Um, I, uh, last year was the first year that I didn't play fantasy football, mm. and I realized how much better I felt. It's like because I mostly because I put I, I'm somebody who turns everything into homework, so like I put so much work into something if I'm into it, and I realized oh I could let go of some of these things. So I've actually I've actually been pulling away a little bit from this, yeah.
0: Which is probably healthier than my attitude towards <laughs> all this. I have to say I don't actually have an especially strong rooting interest. I mean I, I watched the U.S. game yesterday against Wales, Now root for them. Um, I actually I'm just kind of enjoying the whole competition itself.
1: Well I would say though the my sense and this has always been true of the World Cup, um, it's a lot like being and this is gonna be a very local reference, but it's like growing up during our lifetimes being a Minnesota gopher football mm-hmm. fan. Mm-hmm. Where you know they're not mm-hmm. they're not like at the top. Like let's, I mean, you can say, yeah, I hope the U.S. win, but they're not going to win the World Cup, right? No. Like, no. so, so, like it's if we get to the knockout stage and if we win a game, it's like, oh, that was kind of great. Yeah. Where other team, if Argentina got knocked out in the first round or second round of the knockout stage, it would be a disappointment for us. It would be huge. So that allows you then to watch the way I grew up watching college football, which is I could. Each year, I could pick a team. It's like I'm kind of into this team this year because of this storyline. So it allows you to watch it from a uh, neutral perspective. Well, not exactly neutral, but yeah. sort of neutral perspective, yeah. which is one of the things that I love about it. And it's it's a lot like watching the Winter Olympics in yeah. that way too. Like when I'm watching cross country skiing, there are occasions when a when a um, I was going to say when a Minnesotan, but it, it, it often is. is yeah, when an American is is in the is in it. But I'm often like, oh, this is all about like Norway versus <laughs> Sweden great. versus Russia. All right, let's let's go.
0: <laughs> well, maybe we've piqued your interest. So before we get to kind of the weightier issues of history and politics, in segment 2 we'll do a kind of history of the World Cup. Let let me let me try to give you some teams to follow, break down the World Cup a little bit. I will, again, play the role of supposed expert here. I, I've got a few talking points. Sam has promised to interrupt with some questions. I've got one or two trivia questions to see if Sam might be able to figure Ooh, them out. All right. Let me start with the big picture. The World Cup is every four years. So this is an international tournament. Men's and then women's will follow in a year or two. I I've kind of forgot the rotation. No? I think so, yeah. Um. So there are 32 teams in the current format, eight groups of four. Uh, they play a round robin style, and then the top two teams in each group go into a 16-team knockout bracket. So essentially, into um, the Sweet 16 of March Madness. Do
1: you, as a fan, do mm-hmm. you have a preference for which part of the World Cup you like better?
0: The, the knockout stage. Okay. There, there's a little bit Cause of, me of the that stakes, wonders. or the stakes are so much more interesting. Like the group stage, like Argentina lost, right? But they're in a pretty weak group. They should still be able to beat Mexico and Poland and go through. We'll just see if they're the number one, which is what everyone predicted. And so I me mean, that, that's one of the favorites. I'll get to some other favorites in a second here. Controversial take, I prefer the group stage. Okay. Oh,
1: and here's why. It's, it's why I enjoy the first two days of March Madness. Mm-hmm. I like the volume. I like, like, mm-hmm. there's, it feels like there's always a game. Tomorrow there's another game and you get to see all of the teams. But the cool thing with the group stage is you get to see them more than once. Because if you're somebody yes. like me going in, I can't name a player. By the time I get to the knockout stage, I will have learned, like, at least a couple of the teams, like, oh, I now know who Harry Kane is yep. or whatever I don't know if he's even playing but like yes yeah. okay yeah. yeah like like so 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 I actually mm. if you're going in without knowing things I feel like it gives you a, a ramp up to the to the knockout stage to have that prolonged group plus it feels like a little season you get to watch
0: yeah no I, I think that's a good point if what you enjoy is the sheer variety of teams and getting to know these different nations group stage is great because my sense is it's it's somewhat hard to break out of the group stage and get into, especially to get, um, yeah, I mean I, especially the way they do it now. They they've changed the the seating formula. It used to be every year there was a group of death where you happen to have four really good teams. None of the groups are like that this year. I mean, they're they're pretty clear top two favorites in most groups. And so like, this might be your chance to see some of those teams. But like every once in a while, Saudi Arabia does manage mm-hmm. to beat the, the favorite. Okay. Um, the breakdown is as this. Uh, 13 teams from Europe, six from Asia, including Australia, five from Africa, and then four each from uh, South America and then North Central America and the Caribbean, although there's no Caribbean team this year. Now, Sam, mm-hmm. uh, coming into this year, this is, uh, I think, the 22nd World Cup. Uh, so there have been 84 semifinalists. 60 of them have come from Europe, 22 from South America. Do you know the only two other semifinalists in the history of the World Cup that didn't come from Europe or South America?
1: Oh, wow. So semifinals will be Final Four? Yeah. Uh, So
0: I'll I'll give away no Africa team has ever made the semifinals. Uh, Oh, yeah. Mexico ever make a semi amazingly not Mexico has hosted twice it has never made the semi another team from that region has made the semis uh I am trying to think
1: so a Central American team is what you're saying oh in
0: 1930, the very first World oh, Cup, I knew the United that. States I knew that. I just
1: listened to a podcast about this. That's yeah, right. So the
0: very first World, World Cup was basically a Western Hemisphere. Only four European teams came for reasons we'll probably talk about in segment two. So the U.S. actually did make a semifinal. That's the best they've done. Their next best result, do you remember this? Uh, Quarterfinals against Germany. I in... do. Uh,
1: was that in to, 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 uh, 2014?
0: 10, 14? 2002, there was a controversial loss to the Germans, 1-0. In that same tournament, one of the host countries became the only Asian country to make the semifinals.
1: Oh, that would have been... So that was the Japan-Korea one, right? So it's one of those two?
0: It is South Korea. <laughs>
1: South Korea, okay. Controversially
0: beat Spain to get to the semifinals. That's the only Asian team that's ever made the the semifinals. All right. I
1: did not do well on that. No, that's okay. <laughs> I,
0: I thought you might know the U.S. one because I know you've been listening to a
1: podcast. Now that now that you brought it. that up, like that was so obvious, I okay. guess.
0: All right. So um, what are some favorites? So the way I'll do this is uh, mention that in our department – again kind of at my instigation we decided to do a kind of bracket challenge using fifa.com has its own uh, format and so we've got about 20 students faculty and a couple of faculty kids who have entered and here are their favorites um Brazil and Argentina are overwhelming favorites. Now, again, this is before Argentina lost, but I think still is is still a real. In, and in
1: Brazil's the FIFA number one team. And in-
0: Brazil is number one. Argentina is number three. Okay. So this makes sense. So seventy five percent or more of our contestants expect them to make the semifinals. Eighty five percent expect one of them to win it all. Ten for Brazil. Seven for Argentina. And I don't think that's a totally unexpected um, result. This would be Brazil's sixth title. The last time they won was in the aforementioned 2002 World Cup, which was also the last time it was hosted in, broadly speaking, Asia. Uh, Argentina, though, has not won since their only victory, which was 1986, which is uh, Diego Maradona uh, special tournament. All right. So uh, South American teams, as usual, and they, they often do well when they're outside of South America. Uh, several European powers are also popular picks. About half our contestants expect Germany and France to make the final four. Although, as we'll see, France has some injury issues to deal with that yeah. we'll talk about later.
1: I was I was amazed as
0: I was <laughs> looking at this that Germany's not in the top ten in the world. Germany has had a change of coach. Germany has had some kind of disappointing results lately, and they don't really have a superstar as such. Whereas mm. most other teams, you can pick one or two or. Regular competitors for the Ballon d'Or, which is the world player of the year. Right. Because
1: if you're looking historically at the World Cup, it's kind of mm-hmm. Germany and Brazil are the two teams you look to
0: uh and then one that's missing but we'll come back to that. Okay. Uh also oh, yeah. uh neither was chosen by any of our contestants to win it all. Uh 25% each for Spain and Portugal, each of whom was picked by one person to win the trophy. Spain has only won once in 2010. Portugal has never won before. It would be their first title, but they're often good. And then for your sake, Sam, cuz <clears throat> I know you like their their team color, the Netherlands was not especially a popular pick with our contestants, but they have been runner ups three times without ever winning it, and they had a pretty good first performance against Senegal um, yesterday.
1: Had I filled out a bracket, I would have gone. I would have gone with the Netherlands.
0: I think they're a good choice. Again, they don't really have a star player per se, but they're a really solid team. Now you mentioned Team USA, who uh, drew somewhat disappointingly their first match against Wales, though I think they still have a shot to get.
1: Well, it. And, and and is it? I, I mean, I realize ranking wise, but if we're just really quickly on that game. It's disappointing in part because they had a lead yes, too I think like that's the main I mean if 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 it if you flipped that the those goals and they came back and scored a goal to tie, you'd be like, wow, well, they stole two points or they I think stole, you know
0: it's so they're in a they're in a group with England and Iran and Wales and England crushed Iran six to two. England's by far the favorite to go through. and I think everyone kind of expects, Wales and the U.S. will be duking it out. So it'll probably most likely come down to goal differential, which mm-hmm. is the tiebreaker. So
1: it seems like the big thing is how many goals can you put up on Iran? Exactly. And then yeah. how can you do against England? So right. if
0: the U.S. can pull out a point against England, that that's a big deal. Uh, 90% of our brackets do have the U.S. moving on, almost always as number two behind England. But only five of our contestants thought the U.S. would actually win a match in the knockout rounds, most of us have the U.S. going out to the Netherlands in the round of 16. Three predicted a semifinal appearance, and one brave soul who perhaps is doing something other than sporting performance picked the U.S.A. to win it all. Uh, Who else bears watching? Uh, We'll be talking to Dr. Andy Bramson and probably in next week's episode when we talk about religion and politics. uh, Given his background, I'm sure he would insist that we at least mention Senegal's Lions of Taranga, which is an awesome team name, uh, who beat Egypt on penalties earlier this year in the Africa Cup of Nations. Did lose to the Netherlands, but I think still have a shot to get out of what otherwise is a pretty weak group. Uh, I'll mention South Korea because my favorite player in the world is their superstar forward human song of Tottenham Hotspur who led or co-led the English Premier League last year in scoring, has had kind of a slow start to this year and suffered a facial fracture in the Champions League. Will play, but we'll see how he goes. And then Wales, as we mentioned, uh, is in decent shape after their draw against the U.S., Gareth Bale penalty, even things. And they're in the World Cup for the first time since 1958. So if you're new to the World Cup or to international um, soccer competition, there is no Team Great Britain or Team UK england wales scotland are all pretty good teams northern ireland's even not a bad team and so england and wales both are in this year's tournament
1: when it creates some
0: fun moments like when when
1: wales plays england like that's going to be appointment (laughs) viewing
0: and they each have their own national anthems like it's Mm -hmm. i mean if, if you're a welsh nationalist this is this is the peak go online and look for the welsh actor michael sheen doing his um his attempt to rouse wales to a red wave of victory it's it's fantastic now, you might wonder, who are some teams missing? They're not exactly snubs, but teams that for various reasons didn't qualify. I think from Africa, it's a little disappointing that Egypt isn't there because their striker, Mosala, is one of the world's great players for Liverpool. Um, probably the biggest <clears throat> disappointment is that the sixth best team in the world and four-time World Cup winner Italy yet again failed. This is two consecutive World Cups where Italy did not make... Um, get one of the European slots, in this case because they lost a stunner to North Macedonia in the playoffs on a kind of last-second goal, which is just uh, ridiculous. And then one other team I'm going to save for segment two, but I should mention Ukraine is not here. Ukraine, obviously, has had a very difficult year in many respects. They had this kind of um, Cinderella run beat scotland in glasgow to get to the finals and then they lost to wales 1-0 to miss out on their chance of going to the world cup so ukraine is not there either all right is that a good enough overview? Do we have a sense of? What I think so. You've about? made me more excited to watch this as I'm as
1: I'm starting to think about uh, think about matchups, think about teams, and especially when we get to the knockout stage uh, as the stakes get higher.
0: Yeah, and so what we'll probably do over these, <clears throat> we'll do this next week, and then um, by, the, by the last one at least, we'll be into the knockout stage, and we can do a little breakdown at that point too. Okay, but let's take a break. I need to catch my breath and drink some coffee. We are going to come back with a little bit of the history, especially political history of the FIFA World Cup. week in sports history
1: minneapolis minnesota november 22, 1950 the fort wayne pistons defeat the defending champion lakers 19 to 18 in the lowest scoring game in nba history fort wayne takes only 13 shots all game holding the ball for long periods of time to keep it out of the hands of minneapolis star george miken who goes on to lead the league with over 28 points per game Four years later, the NBA adopts a 24-second shot clock.
0: St. Louis, Missouri, November 23, 1904. The third Olympiad, the first held in the United States, finally comes to a close. With events spread from July to November and only 10% of athletes coming from beyond North America, the St. Louis Games are generally seen as a step backward in the development of the modern Olympics. However, they did introduce two hallmarks of future games, the decathlon and the tradition of awarding gold, silver, and bronze medals.
1: New York, New York, November 24th, 1991. Team sensation Monica Sellis defeats Martina Navratilova in four sets to win her 10th tournament of the year, earning a record $2.5 million in the process. After maintaining her number one position through 1992, Sellis will be stabbed by a fan during a 1993 tournament in Germany.
0: Irving, Texas, November 25th, 1993. On an unusually snowy Thanksgiving in Texas, the Miami Dolphins pull out an unlikely win. Up 14-13 in the last minute, the Cowboys block a Dolphins' field goal attempt. Only for Dallas All-Pro, Leon to make a famously boneheaded play that lets Miami kick an even shorter field goal. Stojanovic will decide it as he will try this field goal, which will be 40 yards, 40 yards. Doug Peterson to home. the ball and then the Dolphins went on and recovered it. It's on the one yard line. It's not in the end zone. It's in the one yard line. They're going to sort it out. And there's three seconds left on the clock. Now someone touches the football here. Watch what happens. It's Leon Lett. No! Lett. Oh, let who is haunted by a Super Bowl misplay and the ball goes into the end zone. They say it was touched at the one yard line. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History.
1: And we're back. Uh, This is Sam Mulberry, and I am not used to hosting segments of the 252, but I am here with Chris Gerritz, our World Cup history expert. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, it's good to have you on the show. Uh, Chris, let's just jump right in. Where does the World Cup
0: come from? Yeah, so I think we already mentioned the first World Cup is in 1930 in Uruguay, Montevideo. Um, But we probably should go back a little bit. So the origins of what we call soccer, but it's really association football, is the 1860s. So it's 1863 is when the football association, the FA, is founded. And you get rules that set soccer apart from rugby. And so soccer really does grow out of United Kingdom, and the first international match, so called, in the eighteen seventies is between England and Scotland. And so the first kind of like international competitions are just what the English, what the British call the home nations kinds of contests. Um, it, but it starts to spread and it goes to South America, it goes to the rest of Europe, it goes through colonization to Africa, to Asia. And in the early 1900s, what's called FIFA, which is the French for the International um, Federation of uh, Football Associations, is founded. Um, and so there's some kind of early international tournaments. And Sam, I think you actually know more about, did you, you've been listening to a podcast series yes. on what, what are the international early international tournaments like?
1: Uh, there is a, there's a, a tournament started by Lipton of Lipton Tea, right. um, and it's it's the first attempt at like a World Cup. Now there wasn't really national teams right. at the time, so it's club teams. And in the first, I feel like it's I, I'm I'm going to get the year wrong here, but 1908. That's what I was going to say. 1908. Um, there's a team from Italy, um, a team from I forget the other places, but then. Uh, they really wanted England because if if you don't have England, it's they, um, it, it's sort of like having you know the championship of American football and not having an American team yep. there. So, but none of the English, you know, professional teams wanted to participate. So it's actually a. Uh, amateur team comes and wins mm-hmm. um and then the second time they do it that same team comes and wins again do they beat juventus or something? i think so yeah. yeah yeah so um so so that's that's the sort of first iteration of something like a world cup but england is very reluctant to want to participate mm-hmm. in in the world cup so even in like 1930 you don't have england there in part because they don't recognize that other people are playing a legitimate brand of football right?
0: yeah i think that's the most important part of the early story is this tension between it's not just england but the the fa and right. the football association and this emerging international power called fifa um i mean there's kind of a false start like world war one disrupts what i think would have been the first actual tournament and then the 20s there's further further controversy
1: and, and even leading up to 1930 throughout the 20s uh, the fa keeps joining and then leaving FIFA.
0: Yeah, and and there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, part of this is kind of a historic, who is the founder of football, right? Is it it England's game, right? And it's kind of an English national possession. To give away the story, the English don't actually play in the World Cup until 1950, which is kind of astonishing. Like, I didn't realize that. And they've only won it once when they hosted 1966. Um, One of the other kind of issues, though, that if you're familiar with sort of international sports history, like we've mentioned the Olympics a few times, is the old tension between professionalism and amateurism. And early on, even English football is amateur, but in the 1880s, it becomes largely professional and it's because of industrialization. A lot of what we think of as Premier League clubs are essentially factory teams and, and working class players are not upper class gentlemen playing for Eaton or something, right, like they, they this is their living. And so professionalization comes to English soccer very early Whereas most of the other European leagues, it's it's much later. It's into the 20s, into the 30s uh, or 40s, even for some of those South American and, and European leagues. Uh, and so there there is international competition, but it's happening in the Olympics. Which of course is amateur until very late in Olympic history. So that that's another kind of tension early on. So the World Cup finally is organized in nineteen thirty, as we've said. The first one in Uruguay was was basically a Western hemisphere kind of affair that Uruguay won and then it will win once more. It's won it twice. So the first time it comes to Europe is in nineteen thirty-four. In Italy it's in France. And and so it's kind of eventually they work out a system where they kind of alternate back and forth. Mostly across the Atlantic Ocean.
1: So, are the is the thirty four cup? Does it feel less hemisphere specific? Like who's who's represented in in in?
0: Uh, no, because if I remember right, Uruguay boycotts it, and then I think even teams like Brazil and Argentina might boycotted thirty eight because they stuck with Europe a second time in a row, and of course England was not taking part this whole time, and so it it's really not until. I mean, the 1950s, right? When England joins and then we're into the Cold War, the Soviet Union starts sending teams. Communist black countries are usually pretty good until the quarterfinals, right? Like, that's when it becomes a really international competition.
1: And even then, though, there's still um, much smaller caps than we have today on African teams, Asian teams, right? I
0: mean, it's it's always been dominated by Europe and then to a lesser extent, South America and, and the rest of the world kind of has to prove themselves and get representation. But if you notice, like, the breakdown I gave in segment one, it's still, like, the majority of the teams, well, I mean, Europe accounts for not quite half, and then South America makes it half. Um, so that that's that's kind of where it comes from. And then, you know, over time, like, it really grows into this huge thing. You get television contracts, becomes massively, massively wealthy, which raises some issues we should probably get to. Uh,
1: uh, one other one, uh, question here, and, and maybe you don't have a sense of this, but when does it really feel like the World Cup in a in a big way. Like like is there is there a turning point year? Is there is there a moment where it captures global attention in a different way? I mean
0: I, I think Pele, right, becoming this teen sensation in uh it was the year in Sweden. I don't know if that's 1958. I might be getting it's 1958. I mean I think like the Brazilian kind of run with Pele like really is a global phenomenon. Mm-hmm. It's not just a South American thing. It's interesting.
1: Um, so it takes, a, it takes a star in some I, ways to do that. I think it's part of it. That, yeah. I think,
0: I forget when the first, like, televised, it's in the 60s, I think. The one in England's interesting because one of the quarterfinalists that year is from North Korea, right? So you also got this kind of Cold War story where the English fans actually kind of embrace the North Korean team. That's the best an Asian team does until South Korea, um, 36 years later. So, I mean, it's it's developing in the 60s. Um, you know, like, my memory of it is when the U.S., Hosts right mm-hmm. um, in the 1990s, and the U.S. men's team kind of starts making some headway and becoming a, a regional power of sorts.
1: Yeah, I would say for for at least Americans our age, that was the moment where it it felt like it was on all of the time, and there was a build up to it. I, I think because the time zones worked yep. and and just where sports coverage, cable TV, all of that stuff sort of came to a head in '94. And so I remember having no knowledge or interest in soccer, but watching a lot of that World Cup.
0: And it was it was genuinely successful. I mean, it set attendance records total and per game that I think actually still stand. Mm -hmm. Right? Okay.
1: Uh, So the World Cup is not without its controversies. Uh, This cup in particular has a lot of them. Uh, If somebody is kind of walking into this fresh, Hmm. why is this World Cup controversial?
0: Yeah, I I think they're kind of. Two buckets here. So the first bucket is around corruption. So in 2010, you know, it was kind of a departure from their usual voting procedure. The president of FIFA, a Swiss businessman basically named Sepp Blatter, just announced that 2018 would be hosted by Russia, whose president you may have heard of, Vladimir Putin. In 2022, it would be hosted by essentially this city state on the Persian Gulf called Qatar, Qatar um like right from the start there were allegations of corruption of vote buying england had made this huge push to try to get the world cup like prince william was involved david beckham was involved they spent billions of dollars right on this and got like one vote in the process and so like they
1: And to this day they've only hosted one, one time, right? right yeah and
0: so there's so there there was there was suspicion of vote buying right and it kind of reached ahead really because the u.s department of justice started indicting members of fifa which has a kind of governing body Uh, including people from South America, for example, some of whom are still resisting extradition. That wasn't all just about the World Cup. That was about regional tournaments, too. But um, Blatter was essentially forced to resign on on multiple ethics violations. Um, If you want to learn more about this, there's a book about FIFA by a British scholar named Alan Tomlinson. And he talks about trying to get to interview Blatter and always getting put off. Um, And so, like, there there was controversy because of the corruption involved. Like, why were they – like, I mean, Russia is a significant country. It's never won the World Cup, but obviously it's a large nation. It was a pretty successful World Cup. Qatar was controversial because it had no soccer history whatsoever. It had no stadiums. It had no infrastructure. It's essentially had to create its own national team and federation. Um, I mean, you you can see how there's concern about, like, oil money being used, which is an issue – In the English Premier League, right? Like oil money buys Premier League teams and makes them, Man City, Newcastle United nowadays, into these overnight sensations, right? So that's kind of a lingering concern in world soccer.
1: So is there a sense that the the FIFA board did two cities at the same time or two cups at the same time because they sort of felt – People breathing down their neck, so it's like one last cash out yeah, before possibly. it gets bad. I mean, is that the it, it theory?
0: Yeah, no. I mean, to to try to defend people, like they're all. It's the second time it's been in Asia. It's the first time in the Arab world or the Middle East, and that's a huge soccer playing mm-hmm. region, right? Like this was a big deal, right. not just for Qatar, but for the rest of the world, especially like there are two North African teams in the tournament, Morocco and Tunisia. They have very close relations with Qatar. A lot of guest workers mm-hmm. from those countries working Qatar. We'll probably talk more about that in a second. Right.
1: I, mean, le- I mean less choosing Cutter and more diverging and saying, we're going to name two cities this I'm time. I'm not as sure about that. Okay. Like, I, okay. I think
0: that is a, a diversion, and so you can read into that what, what you will. So that, that's the first thing, just the sheer corruption of it. The second, then, is what I guess I'd say are a variety of human rights issues. Cutter, um, I'll, I'll talk about something called Freedom House, which annually is an NGO that annually puts out a report on political freedom and civil rights. Cutter is not... In the worst level of state, it's not. It's actually comes off, I think, better than Russia right now. But it's it's a not free state, right? And there specifically have been concerns, not just about its general human rights record, but the way that it constructed the stadiums it needs, brought in essentially workers, most of them really from South Asia, right? And so there have been concerns about um, uh, about what they're paid, but especially about working conditions and very hot climate. Depending on who you believe. Hundreds to thousands of workers have died in the process of building the stadiums we're all watching on TV over the next few weeks. So that's that's one big issue. Uh, the other big one you hear, especially, um, I think we'll, we'll talk about this when we talk about athlete protests, is... Um, same-sex relations are criminalized in Qatar, like in other parts of the Arab world, and um, this has been a real sticking point, and FIFA claims to have extracted concessions that, you know, LGBTQ fans who come, not just players, but fans who come will, will be safe, right, will be respected. Um, we'll see how that goes. And then finally, actually, alcohol. And we'll maybe talk more about this when we talk about Islam and soccer next week with Dr. Bramson, but um this is a country where you you can drink and to this day there are restaurants in in Doha for example where you can get a drink but right up until literally days before the cup started there had been a deal struck that all these fans from like european right and south american nations they're accustomed to drinking as part of the event um, all of a sudden, there's no alcohol served in, in the stadiums themselves, right? So that, that's been a kind of related issue. I don't know if that rises to the level of the other issues.
1: So speaking of some of the human rights stuff, is is this something that, that gets taken into account? Does the Does the World Cup have a – how is the World Cup's history with some of these issues?
0: Well, so once in a while, FIFA will actually impose sanctions – um, not necessarily on host cities, but on teams, right? Now, it, most of the teams that have been banned by FIFA for it's it's more corruption, right? It's it's violations in match play or some other kind of like FIFA rules. The exceptions I could find, I could find three. So the most famous one is South Africa, right? So from 1961 until the end of apartheid, South Africa is banned from many international sporting competitions, including soccer, um, although it's not as good as that as like rugby, right? So like mm. that was a concession to African nations at a time of decolonization and Africa is starting to make its first um, footsteps into world soccer. Um, the second one briefly in the 1990s, Yugoslavia in the midst of the civil war, and then the ethnic cleansing because the Serb controlled government was slaughtering Um, Bosnians, especially the Yugoslav team was banned. And then the one that obviously is most recent is I I left out Ukraine's not in this year's world cup, but Russia's not in this year's world cup because after the Russian invasion, FIFA sanctioned the Russia team. And so it was not allowed to take part in the European side of qualifying um, and a lot of other sporting penalties in Russia. So every once in a while, FIFA will do that, right? Like other federations do. But um there's also a history here of controversial host nations so not uruguay so much but the first really controversial pick is italy because who's the leader of italy in 1934 that would be mussolini that would be benito mussolini this is fascist italy um so it's controversial um because of a few factors um one is just should a fascist nation host now I have to say, there was no real attempt at a boycott in 1934, but this is a kind of precursor to Nazi Germany hosting the Olympics, which fascist Italy wins the soccer competition in 1936, and there was a real boycott discussion of that. I mean, there's a real question of, um, is this a legitimate kind of host? Now, this is also at a time when democracy is much less common. Like, there, there were a lot of countries that could mm. have hosted that wouldn't have met that standard. But Mussolini really uses soccer For political ends. And it's not just 1934. Serie A is born during the fascist rule. Multiple of the really good Italian clubs were organized or merged during fascist rule. This is one way that Mussolini tries to unify a country that historically had been divided kind of regionally, linguistically, culturally. Soccer is the thing that brings Italy together. And he goes out of his way to make sure that Italy wins. To this day, there are allegations I don't know if match fixing is too strong, but famously he has dinner twice with a Swedish referee who ends up reffing both the Italy semifinal and the final. Hmm. And the Italians play a pretty rugged <laughs> form of soccer, shall we say? And they win. And then they went again in 1938, the same year that Nazi Germany sends a team, um, that includes players from Austria, which had ceased to exist earlier that year. So like, you've got that kind of story of like a fascist country hosting, um, and then past that, once you hit the 1970s, Freedom House is born, I think in 1972 or 73. Um, and there are only three cases since then of a country rated not free hosting the World Cup. Russia in 2018, Qatar this year. Um, Mexico is kind of a weird case. In 1986 and 1970, it was, kind, it was like a one-party democracy, so I don't know what to do with that. But the most famous case is 1978 when Argentina... Hosted. Um, And I misspoke. Argentina, I think, actually won. Again, allegations of match fixing. So Argentina had just had a military junta take over control and was starting when Argentine history is called the Dirty War, when thousands of political distance are rounded up and, and ultimately disappear. People are tossed out of airplanes into the ocean or La Plata River. Um, I mean, the, the story goes that those people were rounded up like a mile away from one of the stadiums. I could hear the cheers going on as soccer contested its mm. World Cup under that kind of regime. So uh, that that's probably the closest recent example we've got. The next World Cups can be co-hosted by Mexico, the United States, Canada, and more. Typically, the recent hosts have been you know, very well-established democracies. This has not been an issue.
1: So, is there was there much push for boycotts or? um player protests things like this uh going into this world cup in Qatar,
0: um to some extent so if you want to get a breakdown of this one one thing i used to get ready for the world cup was the guardian is a british newspaper that did capsule summaries of all 32 teams and so they they did the sporting breakdown they talked about national anthem and fan culture and star players but they also had a section of response to cutter and it was fascinating basically Um, all Western, Northern, Southeast, Southwestern European teams. So England and Wales, Germany, Belgium, Netherlands, Spain, Portugal, and Denmark, all to varying degrees, um, players had spoken out and or their national soccer association had spoken out. Um, several of these countries captains were planning to wear a rainbow armband as a protest against the treatment of LGBTQ individuals in Qatar uh and their their national associations had said we will pay the fine there's a fine for uniform violations mm-hmm. and it was made clear right before the world cup started that any captain that did that would instantly be given a yellow card and so they'd all be playing under discipline and that could accumulate and like uh, harry Keene, right the mm-hmm. england striker could essentially miss match time and so they all have stepped back i was watching denmark before we started recording they've been kind of on the front lines of this their captain Wore a kind of no discrimination armband instead, which apparently is okay. Denmark actually has an alternate jersey that's all black in memory of the workers who have died in building the stadiums. Hmm. And a few players, like a couple of the German players, have been very outspoken about all the issues I've talked about. Um, outside of Europe, the only teams that have been any done anything like that are Canada, to some extent, the United States, and Australia. Not a single African team, not a single Middle Eastern team or Asian team, and not a single South American team. Um, part of that speaks to European, and to some extent North American sports, we're a little more accustomed to athletes like leveraging their platform to speak for social change, right? Where that's being controversial here, but it's not unusual in this culture. Um, that's unusual in South American, Central American, Asian football. And what's really interesting, and again, something we should talk about with Andy when he comes on, I mean, a lot of the African countries, in many ways, profile very similarly to Qatar uh, in the role of Islam and politics and or the treatment of LGBT individuals. And so it's not at all surprising those countries and their athletes are not speaking out. Now, I have Heard of no idea of like a boycott, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, all of these players have said they'd rather like use their platform if they're going to speak. What better way than to win, right? And have a chance to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, And there really is no great history of like World Cup boycotts. In 1978, one Dutch star did not play, Johan Cruyff. And apparently it's not even because of like the human rights, it was for other reasons that are still a little bit mysterious. And
1: Cruyff is an interesting guy in lots and lots of ways. Yeah.
0: yeah, so it's I mean this is something we should we should ask Chris more and more about once he gets back because he's really our expert here at international relations and, and in our class we talk about this mostly with the Olympics. And the case we use in the class especially is the history of China and the Olympics. and China's government has always argued for what they call sports purism. that politics has no place right? Like this is about nations, whatever their governments, it's about the athletes representing their nation competing on a level playing field right and that's been controversial over time right because hosting events like this not only bring money into these countries but they give a kind of legitimacy right to that sort of government certainly so it's it's a familiar debate um it's unusual in some ways to have it attached so clearly to the world cup
1: well chris thank you so much for joining me on the 252 you're welcome back anytime it's been great to be here sam thanks (laughs) uh that's all the time we have for segment two but we will be back after a short break to share three to see Get in touch with the show by emailing us at channel 3900 at gmail.com
0: All right, we're back to wrap up this first and three-part mini-series of the 252. Sam, I remember when I pitched this, I said, we'll, we'll just do like 15 or 20 minutes, right? Yeah. I think we've gone I, a little past. I think
1: we've exceeded that. So
0: let, let's hurry through. We always like to end with three to see three sporting events we recommend for the upcoming week. Not surprisingly, there's going to be a World Cup theme at least this week. So let me start. I will I will kind of do my pick, and then the second Chris pick, and then we'll let Sam do something that's a little bit um, less what's well, adjacent, right? Yes, the World Cup. Okay. So I'm going to pick two matches from the World Cup. Let's start with the obvious choice for most of our listeners: Team USA play England on Friday at one o'clock Minnesota time on Fox. Here's the bad news, Sam: England have defeated the USMNT eight of the eleven times they've played. But there's some good news, too. The Yanks have never lost to the three Lions in the World Cup, drawing them 1-1 in South Africa in 2010 behind some great goalkeeping by Tim Howard and famously beating England in one of the great World Cup Shockers 1-0 in 1950 in England's first World Cup game. Eight members of the U.S. squad play professionally in England, including Captain Tyler Adams, veteran defender Tim Ream, and playmaker Christian Pulisic. Pulisic sorry. Okay, second one. This will be my Chris Moore pick. The best match of the weekend pits cup holders France against Denmark. The Danes took England extra time in the Euros semifinals last summer, went undefeated in World Cup qualifying play, and defeated France 2-0 in Copenhagen earlier this fall in the Nations League. Because of injuries, France are without midfielders N'Golo Kante and Paul Pogba, and superstriker striker Karim Benzma. But Les Bleus still stand a good chance of repeating their 2018 title thanks to a balanced roster that includes veterans like goalie Hugo Lloris, forward Antoine Griezmann, plus the most exciting player on the planet, Kylian Mbappé.
1: For my three to see, I'm going to pick something that's not a World Cup match, but it is World Cup adjacent. Uh, This fall, the Ringer Podcast Network has been putting out a narrative podcast series called 22 Goals. It's an attempt to explain the World Cup by talking about 22 famous goals. 22 episodes, 22 goals. Each episode, which runs between 45 and 60 minutes, is an essay about a goal. But it's more than that. Host author Brian Phillips gives a liberal arts and digital humanities masterclass in storytelling by weaving sports, history, politics, journalism, literature, pop culture, art, and poetry. I know what you're saying. This is not a three to see. This is a three to hear. Point taken. But I dare you to listen to Phillips describe goals by Zidane, Dennis Bergkamp, or Roger Miller and not find yourself rushing to YouTube to watch these goals over and over and over. You know
0: what I'm going to do the rest of this morning, man, that's great. I actually, I didn't listen, but I did read through a couple of them, and it's I, I totally second that they're fascinating. All right, well, Sam, thanks for hanging out with me for our first of these three. We'll look forward to folding in a couple of political scientists as we move on, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you think of this year's World Cup. Okay. Um, well, I think Chris would insist that we say at the end, thanks for listening. You can always write to channel3900 3900
1: at 3900
0: at G- channel3900 at gmail.com. Okay. And until then, go Royals.